Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Well, hello, and welcome to Liberty Bible Church. My name is Tim, and I'm the lead pastor here. In a moment, uh, we'll be in 1 John chapter 2. Um, But before we jump into the scripture for this morning, um, one thing that's really important for all Christians is that our values and vision of the world is shaped by the scriptures and not by the world. Amen? And that's why uh, this Sunday is always an important Sunday for me as a pastor in the American context. Because this Sunday is a Sunday where we remember two different things. First, this is Sanctity of Life Sunday, a Sunday where we remember that all human beings, according to Genesis 1, are made in the image of God and therefore have inestimable worth, value, and dignity, which means as Christians we lament the culture in which we live that does not give human rights to all human life. And we pray for and long for the day when the justice of our land is in line with the justice of God. And so this Sunday, in a culture that does not protect all human life, we need to name and value our Christian distinctive witness. And that said, I I do fully expect there are people in this room who have very close connection to someone you love who has had an abortion or you have had an abortion. And to you, I just want, I want you to hear, we believe God loves you and we are really glad you are here. So that's one thing we remember. But, but second, this weekend as a culture, we mark and remember the life of Martin Luther King Jr. That tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. And Dr. King's legacy is a reminder that much of the American church was shaped more by the world than by the scriptures. That much of the American church defended chattel slavery and Jim Crow laws. And Dr. King called the church back to Genesis 1, that all human beings are made in the image of God and that is irrespective of race or ethnicity. So before we read the Bible, and I preach from the Bible, I wanted to name those two things and pray for us, Liberty Bible Church, that we would be shaped in our values and visions of this world by the Word of God and not by our culture. So let us pray. Father, we give you thanks that first and foremost, every person in this room is made in your image. What good news of the value and dignity you have conferred upon us. So in light of that, we lament that that is not the law of the land in which we live. We lament the social injustice done to the unborn. And so, Father, protect us in our vision of this world and make us an alternative witness to our culture. May our care for orphans, may our care for women who are experiencing unexpected pregnancies, May our witness be clear that all human life is made in your image. But we are hopeful, Father, because the gospel proclaims the dignity of all human life. Jesus died for every human life. And so we believe expectantly that our witness to that truth will lead to justice for all. Father, we also lament this morning the mixed history when it comes to racism in your church in the United States. 
We lament that legacy, the legacy that is left in your church, that Sunday to this day remains, in the words of Dr. King, the most segregated hour in America. And yet we are also hopeful. The revelation is clear. The kingdom of God includes all tribes, tongues, and nations worshiping together before the Lamb. That the future is clear where we're headed. And so may our lives now embody that gospel witness and proclaim the witness of your kingdom to this world. And so now, Father, as we open your words, would you give us ears to hear that our lives and vision for this world would be shaped by your, by your scriptures, by your word, and not by the words of anyone else. We pray this all for Christ's glory. Amen. Well, our scripture for this morning is 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So hear now the word of the Lord. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In him, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am a huge Indiana basketball fan. Uh, if our stuff had not gotten here Thursday, I would have a t-shirt that says Bob Knight Basketball School on it from when I was in the third or fourth grade. I still have the t-shirt to prove it. And one thing they teach you as Indiana basketball fans from the earliest age is we have two chief rivals. The University of Kentucky <laughs> and, a, uh, and, there, and a second school, uh, which is, is very small, not important, uh, somewhat west of Lafayette. You probably have never heard of it. <laughs> But we are taught from the beginning, Indiana fans have two chief rivals, Kentucky and Purdue. Uh, But that is not my chief rival as an Indiana basketball fan. There is a school I I despise more than Kentucky and Purdue put together. And that's because, uh, and listen, I'm I'm really, I apologize deeply if you went to this school, um, but it doesn't change what I'm about to say. Uh, When I went to undergrad, my Bible college, it was in central Illinois, and I was surrounded by University of Illinois basketball fans. And they were the, they were the meanest people I've ever been around. <laughs> I mean, there's ways to like rib, you know, like have fun with your rivals. They were truly the meanest people that I've ever, Indiana basketball fans, we would gather, there were a few of us, watch games. Illinois fans would sit and mock Indiana. If I had my Indiana sweatshirt on, they were mean. And so to this day, I will never root for Illinois under any circumstances. Even when Purdue plays Illinois, I am boiler up. 
Which is, is that how you do that? Is it like that? Boiler? I don't know. Um, the community of Illinois basketball fans made, made me want to do nothing, to want nothing to do with Illinois. And I wonder if the church has a similar problem on our hands. The Barna Research Group recently did a study where they found 80% of non-Christians have a negative view of Christianity in the church. The Tom Rainer, a researcher with LifeRay Research, a Southern Baptist, uh, recently re- released an article with the seven most common sayings he hears from non-Christians, and one of them was, I don't see much difference in the ways Christians live compared to others. And then a book released a few years ago called Unchristian, uh, people aged 16 to 29, of those folks, only 16% had a positive view of Christianity, ages 16 to 29. Now, I want to be clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying if the church just got a better image consultant, all of these problems would go away. Jesus was very clear that if we obey his teachings, the world hated him, it will hate his church. So what I'm not saying is if we just live the way the world wants us, everything will go away. No, that's not what I'm suggesting at all. But what I will say is as someone who's been in the church basically my entire life and someone who's been an insider uh, as a pastor and especially an insider, a pastor over the last couple of years, I would say we, we do have a bit of a problem on our hands. Having experienced church community in the last two years, I can see why people have some negative perceptions of the church. So here's my my point for this morning, the one thing I hope you hear. The mission of the church is to make the love of God believable to the world. This idea that God loves you so much that he gave his one and only son to die for your sins, to cover the cost of your broken life, that he loves you that much, that his love is unconditional towards you, that all you have to do is receive it in faith. That is an idea that is frankly unbelievable or irrelevant to many people in our world today. And it's our job as Christians to make that love believable to the world. So three points to unpack that. Last week, I only gave you two points. You may have felt cheated, so I got three this week. Why I think that's the church's mission, what it means that the love of God is our mission, and third, how we do it. So first, why I believe that the love of God is our mission. Now, John pulls a pretty classic preacher move here. John says something that does not make any sense. And that's something we as preachers do. We say things and they don't make any sense. Now, sometimes it's because we're just not very smart. Other times it's because we say something that doesn't make sense. So you start thinking, that guy doesn't make any sense. Does he know he's, he's not making any sense to us? And then we drop a really profound point and you're like, oh, I see. He was making sense all along. And John does that here because John says, I love this, um, in verse 7, I am writing to you no new commandment. It's an old commandment. In the next verse, he says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. Right, so he says, it's, it's, it's an old commandment, it's not new, but it is new. And by saying those two uh, seemingly contradictory things, he's speaking our interest. What does he mean? It's an old commandment and a new commandment. 
And the reason why I think he refers to it as an old commandment, he's actually referring back to something Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34, where Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. So Jesus said, that's the new commandment. And I, I would imagine at that point, Christians began saying that to one another, right? Remember the new commandment. We are to love one another as Jesus has loved us. So by the time John writes 1 John, several decades after Jesus said that, this is now an old commandment. To love one another as Jesus has loved us. So that's why John says, this is no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. When you became a Christian, you heard Jesus has told you, love one another as Jesus has loved you. So in that sense, it's not new, um, it's old. But what John is going to do is say something new about this old commandment. In verse 8, he's going to apply this in a fresh way. And what he's going to say is, basically verse 11, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and, who wa- and, and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So John is saying something new here, which is that not just you're to love one another as Jesus has loved you, but also if you do not love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you do not know God. If you do not love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't know who God is. You're walking around in darkness, and you don't know him. That's a new application of what Jesus said. So back to my main point. I say the the mission of the church is to make the, the love of God believable to the world. Why? Because of the next thing Jesus says in John 13. So in verse 34, he says, Love one another as I have loved you. Then he says this in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what marks us as distinct followers of Jesus in this world is our music, right? It's our parking lots. It's our ministry programs. It's our lead pastors and their their beards, no, the only thing Jesus seems invested in is, is how we love one another. And that is how the world will know Jesus is who he said he was. That he's actually the Son of God, come to die for the sins of the world. It's how you and I treat one another. That's what Jesus says. So the mission of the church is to make the love of God believable to the world. And I, I don't just believe that because Jesus said that. I've seen that practically work itself out. The early church exploded in growth. And if you read histories of the early church, one of the reasons why they grew so quickly is the Roman world was blown away by the love they saw from within the Christian community. And in particular, that people of different races and ethnicities loved one another, which never happened in that day. Still doesn't happen to this day, but it didn't happen in that day either. People who were rich and poor, they loved one another across class lines. In other words, in the church, all of these lines of society where we draw hard boundaries, race, class, ethnicity, all of those things, the church didn't draw those lines. And they loved one another in powerful ways. My favorite example of this is the story of Perpetua, her martyrdom, which is an early Christian writing. Perpetua was someone who was converted to Christianity in her late teens or early 20s. Um, She was from a, a wealthy Roman aristocratic family. 
And when she was converted into Christ, she went into a church in her local community that contained all sorts of people. And one of the friendships she struck up with was a woman named Felicity who was a slave girl. Now, Romans, uh, aristocratic wealthy families did not befriend slaves, and yet Perpetua and Felicity became friends. Well, what happened was persecution hit the local community, so much so that a bunch of the church ended up in prison and were sentenced to death, to die in the arena. And so, Perpetua Felicity and a number of other women were put in the arena together, and the Roman authorities unleashed wild animals on to them. And the story of Perpetua's death tells us that the, the animals knocked Perpetua and Felicity down, knocked them unconscious. And Perpetua woke up and rose to her feet and walked over and saw her friend Felicity on the ground. She grabbed Felicity's hand and lifted her up, and the two stood arm in arm to a stunned Roman Colosseum as these two women, rich and poor, prepared to die together. And that reality left the church from being this small small persecuted minority to a movement that has swept the entire world because they loved one another. That's why I believe that's that's our mission. And we're going to do a lot of things together as a church, but ultimately none of them matter if there is not an incredible love an affection that we show one another that makes the love of God believable to the world. So that's why the love of God is our mission. So how do we love one another? What, is that, what does that look like? What is the mission of the love of God? And what, what John does here is there's a progression in this passage. First he talks about Jesus, and this really even goes into last week's passage, but first he talks about Jesus. Then he says, if you know God, you're going to obey his commandments, right? If, if you know God, you know Jesus, you know his salvation, you're going to obey his commandments. And then thirdly, the primary way you're going to obey his commandments is the way you love brothers and sisters in Christ, Right, so there's this flow. Jesus is this, therefore obey him, and the thing he's told you to do is love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what you're to obey. And, and so who Jesus is that then becomes our definition of how we are to love one another or what love looks like on the ground. And John says three things I want to highlight about Jesus here that defines how we love one another. First is that Jesus prays for us. John says in verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. That's a great line. Worth, if, you, if you believe underlining your Bibles or highlighting your, on your app, do that. Because what John is saying is when you sin, Jesus kicks into action. Just think, when, when you sin, what do you think Jesus' response to you is? Is it what we talked about last week? Is it disappointment? Jesus sits in heaven like, you did it again. Can't believe it. John tells you what, what Jesus does for you when you sin. He becomes your advocate before the Father. Now, an advocate in the Roman legal system was essentially this. If, if you found yourself crossways with the Roman law and had to, to potentially even appear before Caesar, you did not get to go and speak for yourself to Caesar. You had to have someone else come and speak for you to Caesar. And preferably that person had some connections, had some wealth, had some, some, uh, um, some influence they could walk in the room with so that when they spoke up on your behalf, Caesar was more likely to listen. What John is saying is you and I as Christians, our advocate before God the Father is Jesus. He's got some pretty good street cred with God the Father. So when you sin, 
Jesus prays for you before the Father. Remember, He is ours. She is ours. Yes, they've sinned, but but they are ours. We're going to make them as they should be. So Jesus prays for us. And I love the way Thomas Goodwin puts this, the Puritan. He writes, he, sort of, he, he begins with this hypothetical. Where is Jesus right now? Why did he leave earth? Why, why didn't he preach in here instead of me this morning for us, right? What's he doing in heaven? And Goodwin writes, let me tell you, he would still be preaching to this day, but he had other business to do for you in heaven where he is now praying and interceding for you even when you were sinning. As on earth we saw he did for the Jews when they were crucifying him. So one of the ways Jesus loves for us is he prays for us when we sin. So that means if you and I are to love one another, one thing we are going to do is pray for one another. Our first response to sinners is prayer because that's the way Jesus has loved us. Now one thing I'm pretty confident with is in a church this size, there's someone in this church right now you are frustrated with. Or there's something going on with someone that you do not like. I, I can almost guarantee you that's true for all of us. And so the questions then become, okay, what do you do with that? How much are you speaking negatively about that person? How much do you speak about that person when they're not present in the room? How much bitterness is growing in your heart towards that person? How much anger are you cultivating towards them or that ministry or those people? I have a pastoral move, which I've been to- told is, is, a, is a little cantankerous, and I should maybe not do it, but I'll, I'll tell you, and so that way I won't do it to you. But people typically come to the pastor to complain about other people in the church. And my, my response used to, to be, well, when you've prayed for that person, what has the Lord revealed to you about them? And the look typically is, I haven't done that. Because anytime we pray for another sinner, the edge comes off, doesn't it? It's really hard to stand before the Father and advocate from a place of arrogance or pride, knowing you're, you're standing before the one who loved you as a sinner. And so, you and I, to make the love of God believable to the world means our first response to other sinners is to pray for them. And sometimes that's, it all stops there, right? We don't need to say anything else. Once we, we come before the Father with that person's name, all the anger, bitterness goes away. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes there are things to address, and that's okay too. But I want to be known for a community that prays for one another because that is how Jesus loves us. The second way that John tells us Jesus loves us is that he is our propitiation, which um, I'll, I'll phrase it like this. Jesus pays the price to be in community with sinners. This word propitiation, I talked about it last week, actually, in relation to verse 9. It's a super religious word. It's okay if, if you don't know what that is or don't understand that. But to propitiate means to take the sin and guilt and, and, and anger that God directs towards sinners, the disappointment of God towards sinners, and, and to propitiate God is to take that disappointment and anger away from the ob- object and onto something else. So that's what Jesus does for us. When he goes to the cross, all of the disappointment, anger, and frustration God feels t- towards us because we disappoint him, because we sin against him, Jesus has taken that from us and paid that cost himself. And the way that works itself out in any community, it's, 
you have to pay a cost to be in community with sinners because they say things that are, are just not intelligent sometimes. They frustrate us. They do things that, that have to be forgiven. And any time you enter into a community with sinners, you're going to have to pay a price to absorb it into yourself in order to love someone through their mistakes and sin. It is hard to be in community with sinners. And then it's hard to be in community with people who are different from, from you and I, right? Whether it's people who are different in age. We just see the world differently. It's hard to be in community with someone who's a different age than you. It's hard to be in, in community with someone who is a different class than you. Rich people, middle class people see the world differently than those who are materially more in need. Just how it, the, the world works. You cross racial or ethnic lines, we see the world differently. You, you go into cross-cultural ministry, we see the world differently. It's hard to be in community with people who are different than one another. And oftentimes what happens is instead of us absorbing that cost of being in community with one another, we want to we put that cost on the sinner or on the person who's different than us. And John Piper has a brilliant way of talking about this. Uh, this is from a sermon series of, of his. He writes this. When Christians differ, there is a golden opportunity to show the world how we love each other. Differences are not the end of love. They are the occasion for love, which means an occasion for death. One of the reasons it's so easy to walk away from a difference instead of working it out is that you don't have to die. But what we've seen is that before there will be a revival, there will be a dying in each of us. And before we see a great resurgence of love, we all have to die. What he's saying is that, that when this many community of sinners gather together, there are so many differences in this room right now. Some of that's because we're sinners and we bring our sin into the, the, into the mix. Some of that is we just see the world differently than one another. And every time there's a difference, John Piper says, it's an opportunity for us to die. Let me make that really practical. Over the last couple of years, I've tried to do my best to really listen to Christians who see the v- world very differently than us, right? We've, the church is really divided, especially along how do you respond to the pandemic and political lines. And so I've had multiple conversations where I've just entered into a conversation to listen to someone who voted differently than I did and who would respond differently to the pandemic than how I thought we should. And when I've entered into those conversations, I've made the commitment. I'm, they know my opinion because I'm the pastor and I have to lead from a certain direction, but I'm just going to listen. Have you ever, like, entered into a conversation where for an hour you just listened and didn't give your opinion? It's like dying. I know I'm cheating because I could give my opinion every week for, for 30 minutes, but how many of us could do that with, with someone? I, I so value you in your life. I, you don't need to hear from me for the next hour. I want to hear from you. Because the only way I'll ever understand you, the only way I'll ever love you the way you need to be loved is to actually know you from inside you. And that requires dying and listening. And here's what I'll promise you. Because this happened. Every time I, I did this, I came out seeing the world differently. Because it wasn't about me trying to put my vision on someone else. It was trying to enter into their world, understand them. And I, I always grew in my love for them. And it challenged my own way of seeing every time. Are we willing to die for one another? Well, that's how Jesus has loved us, Right? He became the propitiation for our sins. He took all of the, dis- all the things we did wrong, he took on himself. He absorbed that cost so he could be in community with us. And so we should be filled with a community of people who, because we've experienced that with Jesus, now give that to one another. So we should embrace the cost of being in community with other sinners.
So Jesus loves us by praying for us, by paying the cost of being community with us. And then thirdly, Jesus invites confession. And here I need to go back to 1 John 1, because in many ways, 1 John 1 and 2, those two chapters go right together. Um, But John in, in, in 1 John 1 says the primary response Christians have towards sin is confession. We confess our brokenness in an open, transparent, and appropriate way. But my experience in the church is often people are afraid to confess their sins in the community of the church because of how Christians will respond to them. Or maybe they have a doubt about some truth that Christianity teaches, but they're afraid to ask the question because of how Christians will respond in judgment towards them. Too often the church community is, is one that stifles honesty because we want to maintain orthodoxy or we don't want to give people space to ask questions or to be sinners, which we all are. And so Jesus clearly invites a very different type of church culture where, no, we, it's all in the light here. We don't have to hide anything because of the love that's expressed among one another. And the most precise way I've seen this put is by an author named David Taylor in a book about the Psalms and talked about the importance of honesty in the church family. And he wrote this, To tell our secrets to the community requires an extraordinary ability to believe that it will not take advantage of our vulnerable disclosure by judging us unfairly, by gossiping about us, and that we will not be undone by our confession. The reality is in, in so much of the church world, we have rejected one another over so many things. Who someone voted for, how we've responded to the pandemic, all kinds of issues. We've said, I'm out of community. And what... what What's discouraging about the last couple of years for me in the life of the church is not that we disagree about those things. I actually think that's beautiful. Let's disagree. I mean, if you've got the whole world figured out and you, you know, there's no room for disagreement because you've, you've figured it all out, well, man, I think you're going to get lifted up to be with Jesus soon because that's perfection and I'm not there. And so I, I, disagreement does not scare me. It sharpens me. But when we break fellowship over disagreement, over so many secondary things, how in the world can we go to non-Christians and say, There is a God who will love you unconditionally when we can't love one another through these secondary disagreements. I can't look at my non-Christian brothers and sisters, the people I care deeply about, and and tell them there's there's a community willing to embrace you and all your wacky views and love you through them until one day you're conformed into the image of Christ because we can't do that for one another. A confession culture requires honesty, right? Requires a, a, a known that whatever I say to you, you'll still love me. Not that there's not consequences for sin or that when we do something wrong, there doesn't need to be accountability. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying, whatever your confession is, you'll be loved through it. Because that's how Jesus loves us. Confess your sins. And if you confess your sins, I will be faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse us of all, cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's Jesus' promise to us in 1 John 1. Nine, the mission of the church is to make this love believable to the world. But that's not how the world operates, right? The world holds our confessions against you, right? In a cancel culture, you say the wrong thing, you're out. But the, the culture of this world is I will not pay the price to be in community with you. If, if I disagree with you, you're out. And who prays for people who most frustrate? Like that's the gut react. No, we speak against them. Jesus has offered a totally countercultural community to us because he's asked us, to love one another the way he has loved us. So that's what it looks like. So how do we do it? How do we live this mission?
The reality is like you, you can't try hard enough to do this. It doesn't work. And so I want to point you instead to the story of Joseph Merrick. It's a famous one. You know him as the Elephant Man. He had an extremely rare disease known as Proteus Syndrome. It meant the size of his head was increased by almost three feet in circumference, with spongy skin hanging from the back of his head and across his face. The deformation of his jaws meant that he could not speak clearly or show facial expressions. His right arm ended not in a hand, but something shaped more like a fin that was a foot wide in circumference. The deformations in his hips and legs meant that he could only walk with the aid of a cane. And so not surprisingly, most of the people that he encountered recoiled from him in horror. So he ended up as a part of a circus, a freak, sh- a freak show. He, he was the elephant man. People could come and take a look at his strange appearance. And he lived that life for a long time. And so one day a doctor by the name of Frederick Travis came and saw Joseph and in- invited Joseph to come and, and, and go to the hospital with him so he could try to understand what he, his syndrome was and try to cure him. And so Joseph moved into the hospital and was there for, for, for a long uh, period of, of time. And, and Frederick didn't want to just try to understand the physical nature of Joseph, but try to help him have friends, have community. And what was strange to Frederick, the doctor, was that even though Joseph has had all of these bad experiences with humanity, he was kind, he was gentle, he was a loving presence. So one day Frederick found what he believed was the right person to introduce Joseph to. It's a woman, a friend of Frederick's. And they introduce one another, they shake hands, they have what appears to be a lovely conversation for, for a while. And she gets up to leave, and uh, Joseph is leaving with Frederick, and Frederick says, Joseph just broke down weeping. Which confused Frederick, because he thought this went well. So he asked Joseph, what happened? What are you, what are you thinking about? And this is how Frederick Travis responds, or describes Joseph's response. He told me afterwards that this was the first woman who had ever smiled at him. And the first woman in the whole of his life who had shaken hands with him. And from this day, the trans- transformation of Merrick commenced and began to change little by little from a hunted thing into a man. The love and presence of one person changed Merrick's trajectory from a hunted thing into a man. And I wonder, if you're in Christ, have you had that experience with God? Where you came in all your brokenness and all your, your stuff, and you looked like, spiritually like the elephant man. And the response of God to you was to smile at you was to give you his son, was to offer you forgiveness of sins, was to make your whole life new. And may those of us that have had that experience, may you never forget it so that you go and be that same gift to everyone in your life. That there is a God who despite your deformities, physical, spiritual, whatever they are, he smiles at you, he holds out his hand towards you, And he covers the entire cost to be in community with him by the blood of his son, Jesus. But the reality is that's so hard to believe. That the fundamental reality of the universe is the kindness of God towards sinners. 
And it's why it's, it's your and I's job to make that believable. But here's the thing. The way we, you can't try harder. You have to come back into the gaze of God. You have to come back to the cross. You have to come back to the ways in which God has loved you. And until we do that, until everything we do as a church is rooted in God's smile and gesture of hospitality towards us, the love of God will not be believable to the world, and the, the reputation of the church in the world will not be what it should be. The good news is God made a community to make all this believable. That the response to sinners by God is to pray for us. That God's willing to cover every cost of sin to be in community with him. And that God wants to know whatever is broken in you because he will not abandon you. God has created a community to make all of that believable. I need that community desperately. You need that community desperately. So may we create it together. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful that I I pray before you as one who knows you have, have given your own son to bring me home. And so there is a burden I feel that every person in this room, God, whether they've been a Christian their whole life or they've never met Christ, would, would not just know in their mind that's, that's what the gospel teaches, but would experience what, what Joseph experienced from that woman, your, the kindness of your gaze, the hospitality of your love. God, we can't force that. We can't make that. Your spirit has to do that. And so I, I just pray now, spirit, open the space to do that for us. For the glory of of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.